Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining me today for the Final Draft podcast. I'm Andrew Popel and this week I am welcoming to the show Robin Dennison with her debut novel Blind Spot. Now, the Final Draft podcast is a chance to explore books, writing and literary culture. Final Draft broadcasts each week from the studios of 2SER here in Sydney, Australia. Shout out to all of our international listeners. And at Final Draft, we are dedicated to exploring Australian writing. From the debut authors, the people that we bring to you for the very first time, to those classics, the people that we love to welcome back on. These conversations look at the issues that drive each author's storytelling, a way to discover more from the books that you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. Two SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people, and I am recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. And I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands and treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Now, today on the show, I am joined by Robin Dennison. Blind Spot is an incredible YA, an incredible young adult novel that explores what it means to be young, the issues that you know, just are driving every day in that search for identity. I'm I'm going to tell you a little bit more. I'm going to let Robin tell you more about the book later, but I will also let you know this conversation contains a, a special kind of bonus at the end. Robin is a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne exploring uh, queerness in YA, and we spend a few minutes discussing her PhD, which was an absolutely just a really fun chat. So, Come for Robin Dennison's Blind Spot and stay for her PhD thesis. You are on final draft. Robin Dennison's Blind Spot is coming up after this short break. It is my great pleasure to be welcoming to the show today Robin Dennison. Robin is an author and writer from NAM, Melbourne. She's completing a PhD at Melbourne University researching the history of queer girls in Australian YA. Her debut novel, This Is What We're Talking About Today, it is Blind Spot. It is a pleasure to be, uh, to be welcoming you, Robin. I, I cannot wait for this chat. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And I just realised, like, from your bio, I might have to ask you about your PhD as well if we get time after Blindspot. It sounds fascinating. Yeah, they're definitely not unrelated, but neither are they strictly related. So it's it's interesting. More than happy to, to go there if you want. Right, look, let's just see where we, we range. As we get started, I, I just want to let uh, listeners know that this conversation may bring up issues that people find sensitive or that they, they may not want to hear. Like you might not be in the place this morning where you want to hear this. If you're worried about content around sexual assault and um, the issues that can arise from that... Maybe tune out, although if you are um, if you are dealing with this or are worried about that, you can also contact. There is help available. You can call 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732 to reach out for help. Um, so what I, what I want to do, Robin, is I want to introduce the, the book a little bit. I feel like a, a book like this, there are probably different ways to go into it. I'd love to hear how you, your thoughts on this. As we begin, Dale has a secret that's eating away at him. He saw something, some guys he knows from school, at a party with a girl. She didn't look like she was awake and they didn't look like they were asking. Dale was drunk. He didn't do anything. And now he doesn't know what he saw or what it means. Dale's really wrapped up in what this means for him when maybe he should be thinking about what it meant for Chloe. There is so much more to this, but that that sort of launching off point and where we meet Dale is so, so key, Robin. 
and we really like we meet Dale at a crossroads in his 17 year old life. Through the novel, we're going to walk alongside him. A lot is going to happen. No spoilers from me here, but this is going to impact him fundamentally. What I what I wondered and what I wanted to ask you as we started off was: this the Dale that initially came to you as you began writing, or do you do you have a sense of Dale before all this began, like a more innocent Dale? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I think the Dale of the novel, which is in the present tense, um, was always much as he is, maybe in earlier drafts. I think he was a, a little more angsty. Um, but I I think there's moments where I have imagined what his life was like before this happened and bef- earlier before his mum left. And I do think that... Um, it makes me quite sad to think about because I think that it is um, like he is someone who I think has really changed, but we don't ever get to see who he was before. I think I, 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 I asked that because I feel like all of us, hopefully all of us in our more introspective moments, you know, we have memories of being young. We have memories from all across our life, but it feels like that's that leap from being young to being like an adult is both so formative, so crucial to our identity, but it's not like there's a line. You don't get a certificate. There's no, there's no like, hey, it happened, and yesterday you weren't, and now you are. But through the book, it almost feels like we're watching that process with Dale. Yeah, I think you're right that you don't grow up overnight, and there's not there's not a line with before, with before and after, but but it's a continuum, and there's you know you kind of grow up maybe in tiny moments over and over again, and I think we see maybe that happen a few times for him. Mm-hmm. He kind of does try and fail, I think, multiple times to achieve some something or, or, or write something like write something, some wrong. But um, I think there's a lot of like missteps and, and fumbling. And I don't know if he, yeah, it's definitely not a straightforward trajectory for any of us. I don't think. Yeah. And like confession time here. Uh, I'm not a teenager. Um, regular listeners know this, but like I, I feel like I say that because I feel like talking about being a teenager when you're not a teenager should come with its own warning. Like in so many ways, you know, nothing changes. Nothing changes from generation to generation. You know, we all wanted to forge our own identities. We all experimented things we thought were taboo. There was always someone who was always older telling us they knew better. But in many ways, things also change from generation to generation. Like when it came to writing Dale, Chloe, Max, Kieran, Brent, how did you check in with yourself that you were on the right track? Oh, I think it's quite fraught if you're someone as um, uh, kind of self-conscious or, or racked with doubt as, as I can be. But I, I do, as a reader, not really mind much. And again, yeah, the same caveat. I'm also not a teenager, but um, I feel sorry. I, I, I outed Robin as not a teenager. <laughs> um, but I, when I'm reading YA, I don't think I much care whether or not the voice of the teenager or teenagers feels real to the kind of present moment or the zeitgeist or whatever. I think I'm, I'm just speaking personally, like interested in it, just feeling human. Mm. And I think that's the same standard I hold myself to, which maybe 
yeah, there's no way to, you can't go back to being a teenager in a different time. Um, and I don't know what it's like to be a teenager in 2023. So yeah, that was just guesswork. Um, but I, I have to confess that I, 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 I didn't necessarily prioritize the realism of that particular component over a more broad idea of realism of what feels emotionally kind of true, if that makes sense. Yeah. And at the, the risk of, at the risk of using words that can get overused when it comes to talking about narrative, like universality, there are, there are certain universalities of experience and especially of relationships. And I think what I'd like to get into is some of those, some of those relationships and, I might take the launching off point. I've I've already hinted at this idea that the book begins with this tension that Dale does not know what to do because he has seen something at a party and he feels like he knows what to make of it, but he grapples about who he can talk to and not knowing he feels like he needs someone to talk to. He goes through this with each of his friends to varying degrees and I wondered about portraying this tension um, what you wanted to say about this idea of trust and acceptance between friends and between peers in the novel. Yeah, I think that it, Oh, that's tough. Um, because I do think that the reason Dale is so hesitant to tell anyone is, is, is as simple as he's just so ashamed. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure how to answer that. Uh. <laughs> There's a really I don't want to I don't want to give away something that I think is actually really fantastic. Like it's the relationships are are worth coming into this book for. I think watching Dale navigate these relationships well and badly, and I guess I'm thinking particularly about the way he approaches this with Kieran, who is ostensibly his best friend but also he has a lot of uh, hesitation around what that means. Like, what does it mean that this is his best friend and what does that mean he can then open up to Kieran about? Yeah, it, it, it's a bit unclear. I Well, I don't know. I don't know if it's, you know, they both seem to have when things do get revealed between them it's it's not necessarily they have kind of different takes on on why they both think that Dale like Dale kind of thinks that he hasn't told Kieran because he's not sure that Kieran will take it as seriously as it should be taken but I think that Kieran really disagrees and is is more kind of like you didn't tell me because you were so ashamed because you know that I would never kind of do this and I think we like I don't know that it's it's uh, answered who's, who's more right. Um, I think hopefully there's room to interpret, like maybe, you know, both of those things are true. Um, and he, I think sometimes, you know, you hide the parts of yourself that you're most ashamed of from the people that you are closest to, who really are the people that it makes the most sense to share with. But sometimes you have kind of the paradoxical response of, yeah. Yeah. I don't, and I don't want to suggest for a second that you're in any way being didactic in any of the issues that you approach, but you create this really interesting look at the idea of masculinity because Dale has this, Dale has this sense that Kieran's reaction will be 
call it almost a, a stereotypically patriarchal masculine, you know, he wouldn't see a problem with it. He would pr- perhaps take that boys, boys will be boys attitude um, and really doesn't give Kieran enough credit. And what what really strikes me about Blindspot is, Blindspot the novel, not Kieran's, uh, sorry, not Dale's Blindspot here, is that it takes a story that, we understand is is really foundational, really fundamental in our society. It's a problem in our society, and it shows us a way, a way that it is being dealt with now, um, as opposed to you know this would story, story I think would look very different if it was being told in say the eighties or even in the nineties, in the ways that Dale and Kieran and the that, you know when he talks to Max about it, in the ways that they feel able to respond, and the ways that they can talk about this as not something that just needs to be hidden, but should be dealt with head on. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Um, I think it would be quite a different scenario if it was from a while ago. Mm. Yes. Um, I'm actually, can I, can I turn, can Robin, can I turn the whole interview over topsy turvy? Um, I had something that I was leaving right till the end of, of the conversation, because it is probably going to be, um, it was. I knew it was going to be something that was going to be like a big part of the conversation. It was going to one of the heavy, be one of the heavier things that we talked about. Um, and as I'm talking about this, I feel really uncomfortable with the idea that we're talking about the situation where Dale has seen what he thinks is a sexual assault at a party. It's happened to someone. And as we're talking, I'm like, I feel like we're leaving the, 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 the survivor, Chloe, out of it. So I want to turn my interview upside down and ask you about that. <laughs> sure. So Chloe is the character that Dale sees in this situation um, and he very much deals with his guilt, but he doesn't have many interactions with Chloe and I really wanted to know what you were taking into consideration in the ways that you wanted to tell this story, tell what is Chloe's story and the ways you approached giving her voice in the novel. Yeah, I think this is one of the things that I struggled with the most writing writing the book. And um, I think the la- I'm very aware of the lack, like the very noticeable lack of Chloe as a as a presence really um, in the novel. But that was a yeah a quite intentional decision to avoid a kind of straightforward redemption arc and. Also, I had a, I always had a very strong kind of idea in my mind of the type of person that Chloe was. Mm. And it was important to me to have her be that person, which I think in my mind meant she just really doesn't care. Like, mm. of course, this what has happened to her has, has affected her and finding out what Dale has not done affects her, but it doesn't make her want to interact with him any, any more than she feels necessary. And it doesn't make her really give uh, care about him at all. And it was really important to me to try to signal that as much as I could, even if it was through absence. Mm. I was like, I was so fascinated by the ways that, you you framed those interactions and this occurs in a lot of Dale's conversations where it very much forces Dale to confront the idea that he has made this thing about himself and what that means because 
on the one level, this is something that has become a part of his life and that he will have to deal with for his own identity. But in a much larger way, this story is not his and he has to respect how Chloe wants to approach that. And I, I, I'm very conscious of not giving away that because it is it is really sort of compelling to watch how you play that out. Yeah, yeah. Um I'm having a complete mind blank. No, that's I feel okay. Like I've you're also you're, where you opened with. <laughs> you're, you're, you're also you're also learning that sometimes uh, there isn't a question. I was, <laughs> put a, if I pop a rising intonation on the end, then um, you're just like, okay, maybe that was a question Andrew was Andrew was asking. <laughs> Let's jump. I want to jump a little back uh, back into just the the whole milieu of Dale and Kieran and their life at school and and where they find themselves. And particularly, like, Kieran is just a, a fascinating character. And Dale and Kieran, they they drink and they smoke a lot. And, you know, as I'm reading, I'm reflecting back on what I was like as a teenager, my own underage substance, substance use. And I wasn't sure, like, if what Dale gets up to is a lot or normal these days. It's not my place to sort of say or judge. But what did you want to explore in that aspect of the story? The way they the way they use um, substances, the way they interact with their peers, and then also with parents. Yeah, I think that partly I'm quite interested in. Uh, I don't I don't really want to say problematic, but I can't think of another word. So problematic relationships to alcohol in particular. Um, I know that Kieran smokes a lot of weed and Dale smokes a bit, but I would say that Dale definitely has a fairly you know, troubled relationship with alcohol, um, which is something that, you know, without getting, I don't want to, I don't know what kids these days are doing. I know we're in a, a big moment where Australians, young Australians are drinking less and less or, um, but I, uh, I'm, I am interested in kind of the complicated relationships that people have with substances and how people who are maybe really in their own heads um, as Dale is uh, can quite easily fall into a trap of, of, you know, using them as coping mechanisms. Um, and I think I don't know if it's just the kind of YA that I read now or if it has been a shift in the kind of um, norms of the genre or the readership or whatever you want to call it. But I do feel like there used to be more and at some point it seems like it kind of faded away and we're in a fairly like moderate um like there's a lot of moderation in YA which is great to have I'm not at all criticizing that but I think uh sometimes it's you know good to have the not so moderate things that really that do happen and that are things that people grapple with mm. to be reflected because not everyone is able to kind of you know um just you know, have one beer at a party once a month with their friends or that their parents bought them or something, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then, it's, it's, again, I'm just going to reflect on my not being a teenager. And I, but one of the big thoughts that I just had there was like, wow, when you're a teenager, your problem is getting the alcohol. And now as an adult, the problem is just like, I can't get invited to parties. Um <laughs> It is it is truly interesting too because it's also it's also not 
the the anchor point of the narrative. And in fact, you display these behaviours as being a part of the kids' lives. That's something that they, they not only have to approach uh, through the lens of, well, I'm doing something that is difficult. We see Dale, you know, asking people to buy him alcohol um, and, you know, dealing with that. But it's also and dealing with it as a coping mechanism. But Dale has to come to his own conclusions about his substance use in the narrative. Nobody is there sort of saying, this is a problem and you've caused the central tension and as we move into the third act, you're going to have to confront your substance use. It is just, it is a part of the narrative that works very naturally. I'm really glad to hear that because I think that, yeah, that was the aim to avoid um, straightforward narratives of of recovery or growth or or forgiveness yeah so as dale we talked about dale it's a couple of big things that he's working to um, overcome or working to deal with he's feeling like he has to navigate these relationships and this new relationship does come into his life when his cousin max arrives max is 19 she's coming to stay with the family because she is working through, or uh, it's probably not even the correct word here, but she is in the middle of a crisis because she has an eating disorder. And Dale, he doesn't quite know what to make of this. He doesn't know what that means. He's not sure if this is a stranger or a new ally in his home, a friend or just some person. You know, Max has her own troubles. And I was really curious about that juxtaposition that you were creating between Dale and Max, both working to overcome these things that both seem so big, both seem so life-threatening in their in their young lives. Yeah, I think both Max and Dale are at a very vulnerable point in their lives. Um, like we already discussed, we you know, Dale's changed a lot and maybe it hasn't, like I feel like he maybe is always struggling to get his footing, trying to deal with these situations that he's finding himself in um, and this new life where his mum's gone and now there's this there's this stranger in the house. And I think Max is at like a tipping point in her illness where whatever she's been doing hasn't been working, whatever recovery her and her mother have been exploring and her doctors hasn't been working. And um, it is, yes, they do feel kind of both on like a, a precipice and then it's, uh, it's like, are they going to be? Are they going to make each other's situations worse or better? Mm. I want to. I've. <laughs> I have kind of a few sidestep questions here, um, because again, I, I we we talked off air, and I, I talked about how there were all these different threads that I wanted to pull in blind spot. Um, let's let's take it. Let's take the biggest possible sidestep, because we're talking about these these things that we might recognize from when we were YA, um, but then also reading them from an older perspective. And it got me really like thinking, and this is a bit part genre, part kind of category YA type question. The way you write Dale's parents, their struggles to be their imperfect selves whilst also trying to be a parent who, you know, I feel like all parents have this sense of if I'm not a paragon, somehow my child will feel like the world is a permissive place. Um, do you do you have that in mind? Do you ever have parents in mind? And do you think parents might turn to a book like Blind Spot for, you know, kind of insights into their own kids and maybe their own parenting? Ooh, I don't know. Um, Would that I, freak you I, out if they were? <laughs> no, uh, I, maybe. Um, I don't, I have to admit, I try to 
keep real readers in mind as little as possible. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably even more true of real readers who are parents, um, which is maybe why there's so much things like drinking and and substances and, you know, not absent parents, but uh, adolescents not confiding in in parents. Um, I I try not, I feel like I'm the kind of writer that gets, uh, that freezes if I think too closely about someone ever actually reading what I'm writing. And so it's important to me to like, not, not really hold the real reader in mind at all. But I, uh, I did in writing Dale's parents, especially his dad, I, I was quite deliberate in trying to balance, um, someone who like, you know, loves and cares about their child, but also who really has no idea what's what's going on and for whatever reason isn't confided in. Mm. He was he was a really fascinating character because I got I got this sense. You you left him so open as to allow I, I think us to read into him. And I, I was really curious as to whether, you know, like under the surface, was he thinking about himself and, you know, what his decisions might mean for for Dale or was he really just you know kind of he it, there was also this reading of him where he was you know just he was quite laid back and trusting and and at heart felt like Dale would make the right decision but he didn't quite know how to communicate that so his default was just not communicating at all yeah I think to a certain extent my aim was always like he's just kind of a bloke trying to get through the day mm. And um, in the context that we find him in when his wife's left, like I think it's about three months ago, um, probably not abruptly, but still kind of like, you know, um, dismantling his his life. And he's probably, as we've discussed, Dale's like changed in ways that we don't quite know, but he's probably watching his son kind of transform in a way that's quite... um, strange and hard to grapple with. And I think, um, yeah, I, I, I quite like him. He's one of my, I, I feel quite fond of him as a character. I feel like, yeah, but I think, uh, he probably, no parent is perfect and, but that doesn't mean they're bad. Mm. And there's this, there was all these really interesting parallels that, um, that, Again, I, I'm not sure if they were, you know, by design or they just emerged in the text, but there was a great moment um, where Dale is going through a particularly tough time. He's feeling particularly alone and he's reflecting on on friendships and he says something along the lines of maybe I should have made a couple of other friends, you know, just as backup and... As you're reading this, you may not notice it, or you, may, as I did, I reflected on it later. It's just like, wow, I wonder. That's probably something Dale's dad is thinking about right now, as he's feeling, you know, like Dale, Dale's under the impression that his dad just works a lot, and um, maybe he needed some backup friends just in case. That's so funny. That was not an. In, there are intentional parallels in the book, but that is not one of them. I I love that. Um, I think his dad probably could have done with some more friends. Um, it sounds like he's actually quite isolated, which I think makes it harder for him to deal with um, whatever's going on with Dale. And I do find that, yeah, um, it's quite a callous thing to think. Uh, and yet he thinks it. 
I like gener- and generationally it it does kind of speak to Dale at at this sort of crossroads in his life this approaching this very key issue but also not knowing where he can turn the choice to the choice to speak the choice to reach out the choice to you know as he does with Kieran trust that friends might not have the most perfect answer uh, or just keep it quiet is is going to be really formative and and again not that you were being didactic about the state of masculinity in 2023 but in terms of the state of masculinity in 2023 like that's a big choice men have to make are we going to be the silent ones or are we going to talk and then by talking we actually create community which is probably one of the things that men need to do and we really see that quite well through Dale's Dale and his dad yeah Great. I'm yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. I don't have to ask a question where um, I mean, actually, actually have to ask a question instead of throwing these comments at you. I think <laughs> I think I prefer listening to you talk. So don't don't change. Brilliant. But this this is all this is going to all be for the podcast because uh, you know people don't pay their ten cents on the radio to hear me talk. <laughs> well, they maybe do if they're tuning in twice a week. You're the constant, yeah, right? Possibly. Possibly, I hope they're tuning in. I hope they're tuning in. You're too kind, Robin. <laughs> um, I've got I've got a couple more questions um, that I I really wanted to get to, and one of them one of them didn't go. I I don't know if you find this in your writing. I mean, my writing is like a, at most a paragraph when it comes to a question, but this this ended very differently to where it started as I was writing it, because I was I really wanted to ask you about Brent. Um, the 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 character of Brent, the way he develops in his relationship with Dale, like with identity being such a key theme in the novel, watching Dale and Brent begin their relationship, it's so fraught, it's so sweet. Dale is so in his own head, he can't seem to help but overthink things. Dale feels, he feels so uncertain in his growing queer identity, but then there's also this thing of the age difference with Brent. I mean, like, one year, it's huge when you're a teenager. So here's where it takes a turn. Hopeless romantic question here. Do you think like first love relationships ever last? No. I mean, shouldn't have asked a yes, no question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I don't want to give spoilers. Um, It just seems um, doomed to me. I mean, most relationships end. I sound like a pessimist. Oh, I was like, are you getting like really existential? Death is the only journey that we truly go on for life or, you know. I mean, all relationships end if we look at it that way. Mm. No, I don't think that. I think it's the exception, not the rule for kind of first loves to last. Yeah. I think it's, you know, my my parents got married when my mum was 18. So, and they're still together. That's gorgeous. That's cute. Happy happy anniversary to whenever they're having their next anniversary from Final Draft. Yeah, um, I'm gonna. I'm, I, I want to throw my last my last sort of written down question here because, um, and then then who knows where this will go? Or we'll just say goodbye. But you mentioned before the idea of having anything in the in the novel sort of neatly wrap up, and that that not feeling, I guess, real and not really what you wanted to achieve. So without spoilers and without giving too much away in other areas, Blind Spot essentially it deals with a crime. We know in this world that most sexual assaults do not get reported, 
the ones that do often have little chance of successful prosecution. Looking at Chloe's story, looking at Dale's role, his guilt at not doing anything, how did you want to deal with the notion of consequence in the book? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think fairly early on, I knew that this was a story about people grappling with something that they weren't necessarily going to share with the powers that be for lack of a better term. Again, like you said, not to give spoilers and these things do come up um, and there's, uh, you know, something does kind of get discussed at the end of the novel that, that, you know, leaves us in a maybe ambiguous place regarding that. But I, I think that from my perspective, as you said, things like this are so rarely prosecuted um, and, you know, rarely reported. And even when they are really prosecuted, that it, it feels to me most true to try to explore it in a way that doesn't pretend that it is easy to report these things or that it is likely to be listened to and taken seriously and investigated and prosecuted. And yeah, I think it's an interesting tension between, and maybe it's, and it's especially interesting for YA when it's like the question of are books there to represent how the world is or are they there to represent how the world could be if it were better? And I don't, I don't have a one. I like reading books that do that do both or that, you know, but I think as a writer, I tend to be of the representing how things feel rather than what would be the better world that we're not in. One thing that really jumped out at me around the idea of consequence, because we've we've sort of talked there a little bit about statistics around what tangibly happens in the real world, or, or more actually what doesn't happen. You know, we very rarely see reporting. We very rarely see successful prosecution. And Dale Dale's dilemma, Dale's guilt is entirely existential. And so many times he reflects when he's at school, he sees the people that he knows he saw at the party. He sees Chloe, and that is a relationship thread in the novel. But he also sees the two young men that he understands were were at that party and that had done this to Chloe. And unless I'm wrong, they they do not feature any sort of speaking role. He Dale sees them from afar. And he it seems like the thing that is most racking him is that from his perspective, they have moved on with their lives. Of anyone, they seem to be the ones that have moved on with their lives. And he he is not dealing with the idea that that can happen, like that this thing can can occur in the world and that they can just act like it didn't happen. And and that was like that's a devastating um, that's a devastating sort of narrative turn, I think, for any reader. And while you are very obviously flagged that these are bad people the idea that we have this open-ended idea of consequence makes it all the, all the more harder? Like, was, was that something that you were putting into the novel or is that, again, something that I'm kind of dragging out? No, it's definitely there. Um, and it's just, uh, again, I guess 
different people have different perspectives on on this stuff, but I am someone who most craves in books that I'm reading a sense of like like truth or I mean that's such a fraught term, but you know like does this feel real? Mm. And um, unfortunately, it's horrible to to say, but it's just the most real feeling to me is that these like I think there's a scene fairly late in the novel where Dale is reflecting that you know these people don't seem to give a second thought to what they've done and you know like he imagines that in the future like what you know what what their lives are going to be like will they just keep getting away with stuff like this and treating people like this with no consequences and um yeah i think that's a great observation the way you've put it you worded that really nicely so thank you it's yeah and look it's it's one of the most devastating things and i think it's why one thing that really resonated with me with blind spot is we can if we could change the criminal justice system like if we could even even if we could change somehow the environment that makes women feel like they can't report or they're afraid to report that might not necessarily change the mindset the you know call it um call it male privilege call it the patriarchy it won't change the way certain people think certain men think that this is an entitlement and that it it is just a moment in their lives that has no further repercussions and again for like i feel a there's a power in every reader who can read that walk away absolutely devastated and think that's not right like something in this world needs to change yeah yeah I did it again and didn't put a question on the end. I get so um, enthralled by what you're saying that then when you finish what you're saying, I've forgotten how you started. Um, and then, but, but then I'm like, no, I did have something to say, but it's just fallen right up. I think it's just nerves. <laughs> well, thank you. And that, that is, that is a very kind sort of thing to say. Like, I don't want to th- like have the words fall out, but what I'm, what I might actually do, um, Robin is uh, sort of, I'm just going to let people know, first of all, that I am speaking with Robin Dennison. We are discussing her novel Blind Spot, and we have been discussing some really heavy issues. And if this is, if you have stayed with the interview, if um, if you are, you know, thinking about checking out Blind Spot, but this has brought up anything for you, one eight hundred respect one eight hundred seven three seven seven three two is a number that you can call. Support is always available. Um, and Robin, like before I say goodbye, in your bio I introduced you. You're completing a PhD researching the history of queer girls in Australian YA. This is a whole other conversation. Like I, this feels like a thesis I want to read. Can you like just give me a through line or like what does what what is the history of queer girls in Australian YA? It's I think both richer and maybe a little more disappointing than you think it will be somehow simultaneously Um, and disappointing partly because so many of these novels are so hard to find Um, even with uh, the resources of a large institution at my fingertips it has been a struggle to find some of them Um, so I am only looking at realism YA novels and two important caveats and I'm only looking at queer girls who are main characters and I have a fairly loose definition of queer it can be implied or it can be explicit Um, and uh, any kind of sexual fluidity I kind of um include in my definition. So do you have to kind of like deep dive into 
uh, ideas around like implicit and explicit coding for like different periods. Like I'm, I want to, I want to ask about Picnic at Hanging Rock because I'm like, I feel like there's probably some coding in there for different readers, or is that a spoiler for your PhD? It's absolutely not because I haven't even read it, let alone discussed it in the PhD. I mean, like, I, I, I don't know. My my favorite my my favorite headcanon for Picnic at Hanging Rock is that it's actually, um, it's actually a really interesting clash of. Um, uh, like religious mythos, and you know what 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 occurs in the novel is like a transplanting of um, English cultural folklore onto the Australian sort of landscape, and and that's why it all goes so horribly wrong. But um, yeah, okay, well, not picnic at Hanging Rock. I'm not going to tell you how to write your thesis. So where where do we start? Where do we start with this this idea of queer queer girls in Australian YA? We start in 1987 with Jenny Porsacker's What Are Ya? Which is a kind of uh, dual narrative coming out story of a a young lesbian woman and her straight friend. And they're both kind of navigating their relationships and and, and burgeoning sexuality. Um, I'm quite, uh, I'm now like, oh no, Picnic at Hanging Rock, better read it. I'm just. When was it published? Oh gosh, is it? I've got it somewhere on the bookshelf, but I'm not going to make you wait while I get up. Um, well, the film the film was 1975. The book isn't that tra- isn't that tragic. The internet immediately goes to the film. Where's the damn book? Always the way. Joan Lindsay's Picnic at Hanging Rock. The novel set in 1900, so I think it's written it's written in the period just after that. I just I just sort of feel like you've got a girls' school. You've got these these really close relationships and the the women the young women that disappear and then the one that is left behind and like I don't I don't know that I I have enough of a um, sort of sense of reading the way that might be encoded but I feel like there's something there. Um, there probably is, um, and I'll I'll definitely have to check it out. But the my thesis does kind of use a fairly. Um, uh, contemporary definition of YA as a as a relatively recent category for to avoid using the term genre. I think it's a genre, but with there's disagreement in the field. Um, but yeah, as a fairly recent kind of phenomenon um, that has yeah. So I would possibly say that Picnic at Hanging Rock maybe is from an earlier generation of texts that we wouldn't that we can interpret in a YA context now, like Catcher in the Rye, for example, mm. but maybe isn't actually, like I'm looking at texts that were marketed to an adolescent audience at the time by, yeah, but just trailed off there, didn't I? No, that's okay. I love, I even love the idea of like get category versus genre. And when I first started doing this show like 10, 10 odd years ago, um, it was something where I would, I would kind of, like very vehemently be like, you know, YA is a category. It's not a genre. It's a category that contains genres. Um, and it's, but it's interesting to think about it as a, as a genre, like as a genre, what would that mean? And then, so what do we then look back on? Um, yeah, I think, and I'm probably using shorthand when I shouldn't. So when I say YA in the context of my PhD and also in the context of most of the time when I'm talking about it, because I do mostly read realism YA or what we might, you know, contemporary realism kind of loosely labeled. Um, so I, 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 and I do think that contemporary realism YA can kind of be argued to be a genre um, in that it, it tends to have a fairly 
um, distinct voice that's quite intimate with the reader, that's generally first person, increasingly since the mid-noughts, it's been in the present tense, um, and it's got that kind of um, implied adolescent reader who is kind of the confidant of the narrator Mm. um, in a fairly peer way um, and can be quite sardonic or a little bit sarcastic and kind of a little bit like us them when thinking about authority figures and adults. I think that those are like, and then it, you know, that we've got the coming of age narrative and they'll be like, it'll hit some points. There's probably a romance subplot. Um, and I think that all of those things are markers of what we might call a genre. Oh, so with, yeah. yeah. And so I think it's, it's going to be fab. Like, I mean, you know, I, I I don't know that PhDs ever get the readership that they deserve. So, you know, if you're ever looking for a reader, because I, I, I knew I'd seen this on your website, you've got a gorgeous bookshelf pick. I'm not sure if that's the bookshelf behind you right now, but I know I know at least a few of these, like um, Anna Waitley, Kay Kerr, uh, Alison Evans, are all, all uh, writers that have, have found, uh, you know, spots on this show and I've loved talking to them. So it's like, yeah, I'm excited to find out more. It's, it's so fun. It's been so fun to kind of dive into this history and then also through to the contemporary mm-hmm. examples um, and to be able to focus specifically on YA um, because the scholarship side of stuff, like the academic conversations about YA are so dominated by US texts. Um, and there's also a lot of great work on genre like dystopian and fantasy novels, which is not my area of expertise at all. But it's just been um, so fun to be able to limit it really to only Australian texts, only these realist texts, only ones that look at that kind of in some way grapple with the experience of queer girlhood. Mm. And um, there's there's so many great books and it's such like they feel, especially the older ones, it feels like it feels kind of like, does it, has anyone ever read this book other than me? Like, did anyone pay attention when this was published? It's a bit sad really, but anyway. It's a good feeling though, isn't it? Are you just like, now you're just like, okay, now I need to shove these books into as many hands as I possibly can. And Pretty much. The number of people who I'm like, do you like Joanne Horneman's books? And they're like, who? Um, they're, yeah, I've lost count. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, hey, I've well done you for getting invited into social spaces after you've been like, can I talk to you about a very niche book topic? Uh, yeah, I, I think I think people avoid me at parties for that reason. I think they might avoid me too because I do love being like, what did you think of? What do you think of this current trend in YA? <laughs> very good, very good. Oh, Mike. <laughs> Robin, you've been super generous with your time, especially for this last little bit of the conversation. I should probably let you like go have your evening and have your dinner and things like that. But I, I really appreciate that your time you've taken. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Thank you for joining me today on the Final Draft podcast. Thank you also again to Robin Dennison for chatting about her new her debut novel, Blind Spot, chatting about her PhD. And uh, yeah, go check out Blind Spot. It's available now. Final Draft is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You will find us on social media. If you can't find us on social media, that's probably because they invented a new social media while I wasn't uh, looking and we're not there yet. But look, if you do find us, say g'day. Tell me what you're reading. If you're listening to this, wherever you're listening, whatever podcatcher you're listening to this to, can you give us a rating? Can you leave us a comment? Can you help other people discover great Australian writing through Final Draft? Uh, My name's Andrew Popel. 
I'm going to be back with more incredible books. I'm never going to stop reading these books and talking to the authors. If you'll have me, I will keep doing it. Till next time, though. Happy reading. Bye for now.